Section three of Myths of Babylonia and Assyria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Myths of Babylonia and Assyria by Donald Alexander Mackenzie. Chapter two The Land of Rivers and the God of the Deep. Ancient Babylonia was for over four thousand years the garden of Western Asia. In the days of Hezekiah and Isaiah, when it had come under the sway of the younger civilization of Assyria on the north, it was a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey. Herodotus found it still flourishing and extremely fertile. This territory, he wrote, is of all that we know the best by far for producing grain. It is so good that it returns as much as two hundredfold for the average, and, when it bears at its best, it produces three hundredfold. The blades of the wheat and barley there grow to be full four fingers broad, and from millet and sesame seed, how large a tree grows, I know myself, but shall not record, being well aware that even what has already been said relating to the crops produced has been enough to cause disbelief in those who have not visited Babylonia. Today great tracts of undulating moorland, which aforetime yielded two and three crops a year, are in summer partly barren wastes and partly jungle and reedy swamp. Bedouins camp beside sandy heaps, which were once populous and thriving cities, and here and there the shrunken remnants of a people once great and influential eke out precarious livings under the oppression of Turkish tax-gatherers, who are scarcely less considerate than the plundering nomads of the desert. This historic country is bounded on the east by Persia, and on the west by the Arabian desert. In shape somewhat resembling a fish, it lies between the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates one hundred miles wide at its broadest part, and narrowing to thirty-five miles towards the tail of the latitude of Baghdad. The head converges to a point above Basra, where the rivers meet and form the Shat el-Arab, which pours into the Persian Gulf after meeting the Karun, and drawing away the main volume of the double-mouthed river. The distance from Baghdad to Basra is about three hundred miles, and the area traversed by the Shat el-Arab is slowly extending at the rate of a mile every thirty years or so, as a result of the steady accumulation of silt and mud carried down by the Tigris and Euphrates. When Samaria was beginning to flourish, these two rivers had separate outlets, and Eridu, the seat of the cult of the sea-god Ea, which now lies one hundred twenty-five miles inland, was a seaport at the head of the Persian Gulf. A day's journey separated the river mouths when Alexander the Great broke the power of the Persian Empire. In the days of Babylonia's prosperity, the Euphrates was hailed as the soul of the land and the Tigris as the bestower of blessings. Skillful engineers had solved the problem of water distribution by irrigating sun-parched areas and preventing the excessive flooding of those districts which are now rendered impassable swamps when the rivers overflow. A network of canals was constructed throughout the country, which restricted the destructive tendencies of the Tigris and Euphrates, and developed to a high degree their potentialities as fertilizing agencies. The greatest of these canals appear to have been anciently river beds. One, which was called Shat and Nil to the north, and Shat el Kar to the south, curved eastward from Babylon, and sweeping past Nippur, flowed like the letter S towards Larza, and then rejoined the river. It is believed to mark the course followed in the early Sumerian period by the Euphrates River, which has moved steadily westward many miles beyond the sites of ancient cities that were erected on its banks. Another important canal, the Shat el-Hai, 
crossed the plain from the Tigris to its sister river, which lies lower at this point and does not run so fast. Where the artificial canals were constructed on higher levels than the streams which fed them, the water was raised by contrivances known as shadoofs. The buckets or skin bags were roped to a weighted beam, with the aid of which they were swung up by workmen and emptied into the canals. It is possible that this toilsome mode of irrigation was substituted in favorable parts by the primitive water-wheels which are used in our own day by the inhabitants of the country who cultivate strips of land along the river-banks. In Babylonia there are two seasons, the rainy and the dry. Rain falls from November to March, and the plain is carpeted in spring by patches of vivid green verdure and brilliant wild flowers. Then the period of drought ensues. The sun rapidly burns up all vegetation, and everywhere the eye is wearied by long stretches of brown and yellow desert. Occasional sandstorms darken the heavens, sweeping over sterile wastes and piling up the shapeless mounds which mark the sites of ancient cities. Meanwhile, the rivers are increasing in volume, being fed by the melting snows at their mountain sources far to the north. The swift Tigris, which is 1,146 miles long, begins to rise early in March and reaches its highest level in May, before the end of June it again subsides. More sluggish in movement, the Euphrates, which is 1,780 miles long, shows signs of rising a fortnight later than the Tigris, and is in flood for a more extended period. It does not shrink to its lowest level until early in September. By controlling the flow of these mighty rivers, preventing disastrous floods, and storing and distributing surplus water, the ancient Babylonians developed to the full the natural resources of their country, and made it, what it may once again become, one of the fairest and most habitable areas in the world. Nature conferred upon them bountiful rewards for their labor. Trade and industries flourished, and the cities increased in splendor and strength. Then, as now, the heat was great during the long summer, but remarkably dry and unvarying, while the air was ever wonderfully transparent under cloudless skies of vivid blue. The nights were cool and of great beauty, whether in brilliant moonlight or when ponds and canals were jeweled by the lustrous displays of clear and numerous stars which glorified that homeland of the earliest astronomers. Babylonia is a treeless country, and timber had to be imported from the earliest times. The date palm was probably introduced by man, as were certainly the vine and the fig tree, which were widely cultivated, especially in the north. Stone suitable for building was very scarce, and limestone, alabaster, marble, and basalt had to be taken from northern Mesopotamia, where the mountains also yield copper and lead and iron. Except Eridu, where ancient workers quarried sandstone from its sea-shaped ridge, all the cities were built of brick, and excellent clay being found in abundance. When brick walls were cemented with bitumen, they were given great stability. This resinous substance is found in the north and south. It bubbles up through crevices of rocks on river banks and forms small ponds. Two famous springs at modern hit on the Euphrates have been drawn upon from time immemorial. From one, writes a traveler, flows hot water black with bitumen, while the other discharges intermittently bitumen, or, after a rainstorm, bitumen and cold water. Where rocks crop out in the plain above hit, they are full of seams of bitumen. Present-day Arabs call it Kiara, and export it for coating boats and roofs. They also use it as an antiseptic, and apply it to cure the skin diseases from which camels suffer. Samaria had many surplus products, including corn and figs, pottery, 
fine wool and woven garments to offer in exchange for what is most required from other countries it must therefore have had a brisk and flourishing foreign trade at an exceedingly remote period no doubt numerous alien merchants were attracted to its cities and it may be that they induced or encouraged semitic and other raiders to overthrow governments and form military aristocracies so that they themselves might obtain necessary concessions and achieve a degree of political ascendancy it does not follow however that the peasant class was greatly affected by periodic revolutions of this kind which brought little more to them than a change of rulers the needs of the country necessitated the continuance of agricultural methods and the rigid observance of existing land laws indeed these constituted the basis of sumerian prosperity conquerors have ever sought reward not merely in spoil but also the services of the conquered in northern babylonia the invaders apparently found it necessary to conciliate and secure the continued allegiance of the tillers of the soil law and religion being closely associated they had to adapt their gods to suit the requirements of existing social and political organizations a deity of pastoral nomads had to receive attributes which would give him an agricultural significance one of rural character had to be changed to respond to the various calls of city life besides local gods could not be ignored on account of their popularity as a result imported beliefs and religious customs must have been fused and absorbed according to their bearings on modes of life in various localities it is probable that the complex character of certain deities was due to the process of adjustment to which they were subjected in new environments the petty kingdoms of sumeria appear to have been tribal in origin each city was presided over by a deity who was the nominal owner of the surrounding arable land farms were rented or purchased from the priesthood and pasture was held in common as in egypt where we find for instance the artisan god ptah supreme at memphis the sun god ra at heliopolis and the cat goddess bast at bubastis the various local sumerian and akkadian deities had distinctive characteristics and similarly showed a tendency to absorb the attributes of their rivals the chief deity of a state was a central figure in a pantheon which had its political aspect and influenced the growth of local theology cities however did not as a rule bear the names of deities which suggests that several were founded when sumerian religion was at its early animistic stages and gods and goddesses were not sharply defined from the various spirit groups a distinctive characteristic sumerian god was Ea who was supreme at the ancient sea-deserted port of Eridu. He is identified with the Oannes of Barossus, who referred to the deity as a creature endowed with reason, with a body like that of a fish, with feet below like those of a man, with a fish's tail. This description recalls the familiar figures of Egyptian gods and priests attired in the skins of the sacred animals from whom their powers were derived and the fairy lore about swan maids and men and the seals and other animals who could divest themselves of their skin coverings and appear in human shape originally Ea may have been a sacred fish the indian creative gods brahma and vishnu had fish forms in sanskrit literature manu the eponymous first man is instructed by the fish to build a ship to which to save himself when the world would be purged by the rising waters Ea befriended in similar manner the Babylonian Noah, called Pir Napishtim, advising him to build a vessel so as to be prepared for the approaching deluge. 
Indeed, the Indian legend appears to throw light on the original Sumerian conception of Ea. It relates that when the fish was small and in danger of being swallowed by other fish in a stream, it appealed to Manu for protection. The sage at once lifted up the fish and placed it in a jar of water. It gradually increased in bulk, and he transferred it next to a tank, and then to the river Ganges. In time, the fish complained to Manu that the river was too small for it, so he carried it to the sea. For these services, the god in fish form instructed Manu regarding the approaching flood, and afterwards piloted his ship through the weltering waters until it rested on a mountaintop. If this Indian myth is of Babylonian origin, as appears probable, it may be that the spirit of the river Euphrates, the soul of the land, was identified with the migrating fish. The growth of the fish suggests the growth of the river rising in flood. In Celtic folk tales, high tides and valley floods are accounted for by the presence of a great beast in sea, loch, or river. In a class of legends specially connected with the worship of Adargadis, wrote Professor Robertson Smith, the divine life of the waters resides in the sacred fish that inhabit them. Adargadis and her son, according to a legend common to Hierapolis and Ascalon, plunged into the waters, in the first case the Euphrates, in the second the sacred pool at the temple near the town, and were changed into fishes. The idea is that, where a god dies, that is, ceases to exist in human form, his life passes into the waters where he is buried, and this again is merely a theory to bring the divine water, or the divine fish, into harmony with anthropomorphic ideas. The same thing was sometimes effected in another way, by saying that the anthropomorphic deity was born from the water, as Aphrodite sprang from sea-foam, or as Adargadis, in another form of the Euphrates legend, was born of an egg which the sacred fishes found in the Euphrates, and pushed ashore. As Shar Absi, Ea was the king of the watery deep. The reference, however, according to Jastrow, is not to the salt ocean, but the sweet waters flowing under the earth which fed the streams, and through streams and canals irrigate the fields. As Babylonia was fertilized by its rivers, Ea, the fish god, was a fertilizing deity. In Egypt, the mother of Mendes is depicted carrying a fish upon her head. She links with Isis and Hathar, her husband is Badneb Tetu, a form of Ptah, Osiris and Ra, and as a god of fertility he is symbolized by the ram. Another Egyptian fish deity was the god Rem, whose name signifies to weep. He wept fertilizing tears, and corn was sown and reaped amidst lamentations. He may be identical with Remi, who was a phase of Sebek, the crocodile god, a developed attribute of Nu, the vague primitive Egyptian deity who symbolized the primordial deep. The connection between a fish god and a corn god is not necessarily remote when we consider that in Babylonia and Egypt the harvest was the gift of the rivers. The Euphrates, indeed, was hailed as a creator of all that grew on its banks. O thou river who didst create all things, when the great gods dug thee out, they set prosperity upon thy banks, within the Ea, the king of the deep, created his dwelling. Thou judgest the cause of mankind. O river, thou art mighty. O river, thou art supreme. O river, thou art righteous. And serving Ea, the embodiment, or the water spirit, by leading him, as the Indian Manu led the creator and preserver in fish form, from river to water pot, 
water-pot to pond or canal, and then again to river and ocean. The Babylonians became expert engineers and experienced agriculturalists, the makers of bricks, the builders of cities, the framers of laws. Indeed, their civilization was a growth of Ea worship. Ea was their instructor. Barossus states that, as Oanus, he lived in the Persian Gulf, and every day came ashore to instruct the inhabitants of Eridu how to make canals, to grow crops, to work metals, to make pottery and bricks, and to build temples. He was the artisan god Nunyura, god of the potter, Kuskibanda, god of goldsmiths, etc., the divine patron of the arts and crafts. Ea knoweth everything, chanted the hymn-maker. He taught the people how to form and use alphabetic signs, and instructed them in mathematics. He gave them their code of laws. Like the Egyptian artisan god Ptah, and the linking deity Kinyumu, Ea was the potter or moulder of gods and man. Ptah moulded the first man on his potter's wheel. He also moulded the sun and moon. He shaped the universe, and hammered out the copper sky. Ea built the world, as an architect builds a house. Similarly, the Vedic Indra, who wielded a hammer like Ptah, fashioned the universe after the simple manner in which the Aryans made their wooden dwellings. Like Ptah, Ea also developed from an artisan god into the sublime creator in the highest sense, not merely as a producer of crops. His word became the creative force. He named those things he desired to be, and they came into existence. Who but Ea creates things, exclaimed a priestly poet. This change from artisan god to creator Nudimud may have been due to the tendency of early religious cults to attach to their chief god the attributes of rivals exalted at other centers. Ea, whose name is also rendered Aya, was identified with Yah, Yahu, or Ayu, the Jah of the Hebrews. In Yah Daganu, Jah is Dagon, writes Professor Pinches. We have the elements reversed, showing a wish to identify Jah with Dagon rather than Dagon with Jah, whilst another interesting name, Ayu Aya, shows an identification of Jah with Aya, two names which have every appearance of being etymologically connected. Jah's name is one of the words for God in the Assyro-Babylonian language. Ea was Enki, Lord of the World, or Lord of what is beneath. Ama Anaki, Lord of Heaven and Earth, Sa Kalama, Ruler of the Land, as well as Engur, god of the abyss, Nakbu, the deep, and Lugal-Ida, king of the river. As rain fell from the waters above the firmament, the god of waters was also a sky and earth god. The Indian Varuna was similarly a sky as well as an ocean god before the theorizing and systematizing Brahmanic teachers relegated him to a permanent abode at the bottom of the sea. It may be that Ea Oanus and Varuna were of common origin. Another Babylonian deity named Dagon is believed to be identical with Ea. His worship was certainly of great antiquity. Hammurabi, writes Professor Pinches, seems to speak of the Euphrates as being the boundary of Dagon, whom he calls his creator. In later inscriptions, the form Daguna, which approaches nearer to the West Semitic form, Dagon of the Philistines, is found in a few personal names. It is possible that the Philistine deity Dagon was a specialized form of ancient Ea, who was either imported from Babylonia or was a sea-god of more than one branch of the Mediterranean race. The authorities are at variance regarding the form and attributes of Dagon. Our knowledge regarding him is derived mainly from the Bible. 
he was a national rather than a city god there are references to a beth dagon house or city of dagon he had also a temple at gaza and samson destroyed it by pulling down the two middle pillars which were its main support a third temple was situated in ashdod when the captured ark of the israelites was placed in it the image of dagon fell on his face with the result that the head of dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold only the stump of dagon was left a further reference to the threshold of dagon suggests that the god had feet like Ea oanus those that hold that dagon had a fish form derive his name from the semitic dag a fish and suggest that after the idol fell only the fishy part dagu was left on the other hand it was argued that dagon was a corn god and the resemblance between the words dagon and dagon are accidental Professor Sace makes reference to this connection to a crystal seal from Phoenicia in the Ashmolean Museum, Oxford, bearing an inscription which he reads as Baal Dagon. Near the name is an ear of corn and other symbols, such as the winged solar disk, a gazelle, and several stars, but there is no fish. It may be, of course, that Baal Dagon represents a fusion of deities. As we have seen in the case of Ea Oanus and the deities of Mendes, a fish god may also be a corn god a land animal god and a god of ocean and the sky the offering of golden mice representing your mice that mar the land made by the philistines suggests that dagon was a fertilizing harvest god among other things whose usefulness had been impaired as they believed by the mistake committed by placing the ark of israel in the temple of ashdod the philistines came from crete and if their dagon was imported from that island he may have had some connection with poseidon whose worship extended throughout greece this god of the sea who was somewhat like the roman neptune carried a lightning trident and caused earthquakes he was a brother of zeus the sky and atmosphere deity and had bull and horse forms as a horse he pursued demeter the earth and corn goddess and like Ea, he instructed mankind but especially in the art of training horses in his train were the tritons half men half fishes and the water fairies the nereids bulls boars and rams were offered to the sea god of fertility aphrodite was his spouse the obscure god shoni the oanus of the scottish hebrides received oblations from those who depended for their agricultural prosperity on his gifts of fertilizing seaweed he is referred to in Martin's Western Isles and is not yet forgotten. The Edic Sea God Njord of Noatun was father of Frey, the harvest god. Dagda, the Irish corn god, had for wife Boan, the goddess of the river Boyne. Osiris and Isis of Egypt were associated with the Nile. The connection between agriculture and the water supply was too obvious to escape the early symbolists, and many other proofs of this than those referred to could be given. Ea's faithful spouse was the goddess Demkina, who was also called Ninki, Lady of the Earth. May Ea make thee glad, chanted the priests. May Demkina, Queen of the Deep, illumine thee with her countenance. May Merodach, or Meriduk, the mighty overseer of the Ejiji, or heavenly spirits, exalt thy head. Merodach was her son, and Taimu became the bell, or lord, of the Babylonian pantheon. Like the Indian Varuna, the sea god Ea Oanus had control over the spirits and demons of the deep. The ferryman who kept watch over the river of death was called Ered Ea, servant of Ea. 
there are also references to sea maidens the babylonian mermaids or nereids we have a glimpse of sea giants which resemble the indian danavas and deityas of ocean in the chant seven are they seven are they in the ocean deep seven are they battening in heaven seven are they bred in the depths of ocean of these seven the first is the south wind the second a dragon with mouth agape a suggestion of the vedic bitra and his horde of monsters these seven demons were also the messengers of anu who although specialized as a sky god in more than one pantheon appears to have been closely associated with ea in the earliest sumerian period his name signifying the high one is derived from ana heaven he was the city god of erech or uruk it is possible that he was developed as an atmospheric god with solar and lunar attributes the seven demons who were his messengers recall the stormy maruts the followers of indra they are referred to as forcing their way with baneful windstorms mighty destroyers the deluge of the storm god stalking at the right hand of the storm god when we deal with a deity in his most archaic form it is difficult to distinguish him from a demon even the beneficent Ea is associated with monsters and furies evil spirits according to a babylonian chant were the bitter venom of the gods those attached to a deity as attendants appear to represent the original animistic group from which he evolved in each district the character of the deity was shaped to accord with local conditions at nippur which was situated on the vague and shifting boundary line between sumer and akkad the chief god was enlil whose name is translated lord of mist lord of might and lord of demons by various authorities he was a storm god and a war god and lord of heaven and earth like ea and anu an atmospheric deity he shares the attributes of the indian indra the thunder and rain god and bayu the wind god he also resembles the semitic adad or rimon who links with the hittite tarku all these are deities of tempest in the mountains wild huntsmen in the raging host the name of Enlil's temple at Nippur has been translated as Mountain House, or Like a Mountain, and the theory obtained for a time that the god must therefore have been imported by people from the hills. But as the ideogram for mountain and land was used in the earliest times, as King shows, with reference to foreign countries, it is more probable that Enlil was exalted as a world god, who had dominion not only over Sumer and Akkad, but also the territories occupied by the rivals and enemies of the early Babylonians. Enlil is known as the older Bel, or Lord, to distinguish him from Bel Merodach of Babylon. He was the chief figure in a triad in which he figured as earth god, with Anu as god of the sky and Ea as god of the deep. This classification suggests that Nippur had either risen in political importance and dominated the cities of Erech and Eridu, or that its priests were influential at the court of a ruler who was the overlord of several city-states associated with bel enlil was beltus later known as beltu the lady she appears to be identical with the other great goddesses ishtar nana zerpanitum etc a great mother or consort of an early god with whom she was equal in power and dignity in the later systematized theology of the babylonians we seem to trace the fragments of a primitive mythology which was vague in outline for the deities were not sharply defined and existed in groups Enneads were formed in egypt by placing a local god at the head of a group of eight elder deities 
the sun-god ra was the chief figure of the earliest pantheon of this character at heliopolis while at hermopolis the later was the lunar god thoth professor budge is of opinion that both the sumerians and the early egyptians derived their primeval gods from some common but exceedingly ancient source for he finds in the babylonian and nile valleys that there is a resemblance between two early groups which seem to be too close to be accidental the egyptian group comprises four pairs of vague gods and goddesses nu and his consort nut hehu and his consort hehut kekui and his consort kekuit and ker and his consort kerhet man always has fashioned he says and probably always will fashion his god or gods in his own image and he has always having reached a certain stage in development given to his gods wives and offspring but the nature of the position taken by the wives of the gods depends upon the nature of the position of women in the households of those who write the legends and the traditions of the gods the gods of the oldest company in egypt were the writer believes invented by people in whose households women held a high position and among whom they possessed more power than is usually the case with oriental peoples we cannot say definitely what these various deities represent nu was the spirit of the primordial deep and nut of the waters above the heavens the mother of moon and sun and the stars the others were phases of light and darkness and the forces of nature in activity and repose nu was represented in babylonian mythology by apsurishtu and nut by mumutiamat or tiawath the next pair is lakmu and lakamu and the third anshar and kishar the fourth pair is missing but the names of anu and ea as nudamud were mentioned in the first tablet of the creation series and the name of a third is lost professor budge thinks that the assyrian editors substituted the ancient triad of anu ea and enlil for the pair which would correspond to those found in egypt originally the wives of anu and ea may have made up the group of eight primitive deities there can be little doubt but that ea as he survives to us is of later characterization than the first pair of primitive deities who symbolized the deep the attributes of this beneficent god reflect the progress and the social and moral ideals of a people well advanced in civilization he rewarded mankind for the services they rendered to him he was their leader and instructor he achieved for them the victories over the destructive forces of nature in brief he was the dragon-slayer a distinction by the way which was attached in later times to his son merodach the babylonian god although ea was still credited with the victory over the dragon's husband when ea was one of the pre-babylonian group the triad of bel enlil anu and ea he resembled the indian vishnu the preserver while bel enlil resembled shiva the destroyer and anu the father supreme brahma the creator and father of all the difference in exact adjustment being due perhaps to sumerian political conditions ea as we have seen symbolized the beneficence of the waters their destructive force was represented by tiamat or tiawath the dragon and apsu her husband the arch-enemy of the gods we shall find these elder demons figuring in the babylonian creation myth which receives treatment in a later chapter the ancient sumerian city of eridu which means on the seashore was invested with great sanctity from the earliest times and ea the great magician of the gods was invoked by workers of spells the priestly magicians of historic babylonia 
excavations have shown that Eridu was protected by a retaining wall of sandstone, of which material many of the houses were made. In its temple tower, built of brick, was a marble stairway, and evidences have been forthcoming that in the later Sumerian period the structure was lavishly adorned. It is referred to in the fragments of early literature which have survived as the splendid house, shady as the forest, that none may enter. The mythological spell exercised by Eridu in later times suggests that the civilization of Sumeria owed much to the worshippers of Ea. At the sacred city the first man was created. There the souls of the dead passed towards the great deep. Its proximity to the sea, Ea was Nin-Bubu, god of the sailor. Maya brought it into contact with other peoples and other early civilizations. Like the early Egyptians, the early Sumerians may have been in touch with Puint, or Somaliland, which some regard as the cradle of the Mediterranean race. The Egyptians obtained from that sacred land incense-bearing trees which had magical potencies. In a fragmentary Babylonian charm, there is a reference to a sacred tree or bush at Eridu. Professor Sayce has suggested that it is the biblical tree of life in the Garden of Eden. His translations of certain vital words, however, is sharply questioned by Mr. Campbell Thompson of the British Museum, who does not accept the theory. It may be that Ea's sacred bush or tree is a survival of tree and water worship. If Eridu was not the cradle of the Sumerian race, it was possibly the cradle of Sumerian civilization. Here, amidst the shifting rivers in early times, the agriculturalists may have learned to control and distribute the water supply by utilizing dried-up beds of streams to irrigate the land. Whatever successes they achieved were credited to Ea, their instructor and patron. He was Nadamud, god of everything. End of chapter 2. Recorded by Z. Cameo Johnson Kramer.